Historically, the internet has operated on sort of a trust relationship. Trust among those advertising their own networks out to the world and learning how to reach remote networks. But there really hasn't been that much to prevent anyone from advertising incorrect information out to the rest of the world and therefore manipulate where others send their traffic, sometimes to the extent that traffic might even be black holed, causing major outages. This problem isn't really new at all, whether that's incompetence, bad engineering, or nefarious activity, and efforts have been underway for quite some time to address this. So with us today is Job Snyders, a subject matter expert on internet security, and frankly, that's very much an understatement. Job is a principal engineer at Fastly, co-chair of the IETF Grow Working Group, co-chair of the RIPE Working Group, Vice President of PeeringDB, Director of the Route Server Support Foundation, Volunteer for the IRRD v4 project, Developer for the OpenBSD project, and I'm sure several other roles that I've missed here in this extensive list as well. So suffice it to say that Job is a prolific contributor to the global routing community, and I'm very excited to have him with us today to talk about what's really wrong with routing security and what remediations are out there and are being developed to solve this problem. I'm Phil Gervasi, and you're listening to Telemetry Now. Let's get started. Job, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it really is a pleasure to have you. Uh, before we get going and uh, into this very deep and extensive topic here, I, I would like our audience to get a little bit of background information on your work experience, your technical experience, and also how you've contributed to the community overall over the past few years. Because I just, in the introduction there, that list is pretty extensive of, uh, of what you're working on. Thank you for having me. It's uh, always uh, a joy to, to be in a conversation with uh, Doug and, and yourself. Um, you're asking how I got where I am? <laughs> It's a complicated question. Yeah. I know. How do any of us get to where we are? Right? I, I think if, if I go back to my 20s, I started as a system administrator and somehow uh, noticed that the systems would sometimes be unavailable. And this was due to the network. So chasing, being the problem chaser that I am, I, uh, I ended up uh, learning more about how networks work and and got a job as a network engineer. And then I noticed how tedious it all was to type things into routers and how many mistakes we make uh, uh, on the keyboard. Uh, I myself uh, have misoriginated prefixes because you know the digits on the keyboard are so close to each other. Uh, so from there, I kind of rolled into network automation and, and started programming systems that, that control the network. Uh, and, and from there, I uh, uh, at some point ju jumped on, on uh, onto the uh, uh, latched onto NTT. Uh, they were uh, a provider of the company I was working uh, before I joined NTT, and, and I always uh, very much liked uh, working with the NTT people. Uh, so I, I was there for a few years, and at NTT, I uh, spent a lot of my time trying to improve uh, routing security. So I, I took a look at all the BGP decision-making processes that NTT applied to their uh, uh, routing system. Uh, I introduced RPKI origin validation, 
managed uh, a full rewrite of the internet routing registry daemon IRD uh, that they use to generate uh, uh, network configurations. Um, and, and then I joined Fastsleep because there was uh, a lot of cool stuff to do over there in, in the realm of routing security. Um, and and so, so that's, I guess, a bit of an, a resume overview. Uh, but mm -hmm. what I recognize in, in uh, some parts of my career is that, that I'll bump into some kind of issue and then try to find the root cause. And sometimes the root cause is... Uh, uh, stuff like the IETF uh, uh, RFCs not uh, being complete or, or containing some kind of uh, annoyance or mistake, uh, and then to to go up there and, and even fix things at that level. Um, so, like years ago, I uh, noticed that more and more people were getting assigned four-byte ASNs, and the whole world was using BGP communities, which are uh, a thirty-two-bit value. Uh, and, and 16 bits of that are your ASN, and the, the, the remaining 16 bits are an arbitrary value that you can set yourself. So obviously, you cannot fit uh, 32 bits worth of information into a 16-bit field. Um, and I endeavored on a, a project uh, together with many others to, to introduce BGP large communities. Um, so yeah, that's that's that's... Some of what I do, I, I look at the ecosystem, I try and identify gaps or shortcomings, be it in software or, or in the specifications themselves. Uh, and then I try to fix that in a way that is uh, beneficial to, to everyone. Uh, because ultimately, um, my, my employers benefit from a well-working internet. And, you know, if that, if that means that we have to boil the ocean to, to make it work better, then I will go boil that ocean and make it work better. <laughs> well, I certainly appreciate your effort uh, in the community because, uh, well, I use the internet. <laughs> and from what I hear, it's kind of a trend now. A lot of people are into this internet thing. So, no, no, but seriously, that uh, uh, the, the level of mission criticality of, of internet connectivity uh, on the local and on the global level is such that uh, this topic, I think, is very, very relevant. Um, and then the nature of how the internet is built on these trust relationships, by and large, uh, just makes this so much more poignant now, especially as we are looking at volatility among nation states and, and wars and things like that occurring. Um, I, I do take personal offense to one of your statements where you said that you found that it was often the network's problem or the network's fault. <laughs> it's usually DNS, in my experience, or, or the or the developers just you know writing their applications poorly. Now I'm or expired certificates. Now you did mention that Doug is with us today, so Doug, I, I would love to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself as well. Doug, I think you're no stranger to our audience, but if you wouldn't mind, uh, maybe giving us a little background of your relationship working with uh, with Joe. I see. Uh, so we have some. Common interests. Uh, clearly, uh, Job is very interested in, in BGP secure routing. Uh, that's been my focus for the last 12 plus years of, but in a slightly different capacity. So I do a lot of analysis of trying to understand things that took place. Uh, there's a little bit of storytelling there. There'll be a, an outage, and we're trying to understand, you know, or a hijack or something. Who, what happened here, here and there. Um, so I'm a bit more oriented towards uh, just trying to. Uh, explore and understand real events as they're happening. Um, but that runs into uh, a lot of the stuff that Job's working on. And so, I don't know, a number of years ago, I think, uh, Job, you had a, a blog post uh, you had written, uh, and then I 
thought I saw something that didn't was inconsistent with that. Like it was a routing leak. Um, uh, the you had made a, I think a claim about NTT, and I was like, well, I think this doesn't make sense with what you said. And you explained like what was the there was some nuance there, um, and it, it you know it did make sense. Uh, and then, uh, but it, it kind of started a, a conversation that's never stopped of just like um, uh, I'll find something uh, interesting that I think you might want to be aware of, uh, or maybe you've got some insight or maybe you don't, but I, uh, it usually makes for a good conversation. Um, cause I, you're, you're not spending your day looking at events around the world. Uh, I am. Uh, and so, uh, so I can bring these, uh, to you. And then there's a, there's a synergy between those two perspectives. And I feel like we've had a few times where we've been able to, um, uh, yeah, get some, some benefit, uh, for, you know, mutually beneficial thing. And then, you know, like, uh, like all these, all this work you're talking about, there's a lot of, we talk about the internet as this abstract, uh, thing, but this is many companies and pe millions of people. There's a lot of positive downstream impacts that I think we abstract away when we, uh, talk, use some of these terms. Um, but there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of benefit to, uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of the work that you've done, Joe. So, um, I, uh, I really value our uh, relationship and our conversations, and, um, and then anytime uh, there's an opportunity to collaborate, um, I, I jump on it. As do I, Doc. I, uh, I think it is phenomenal that you, uh, throughout your career, have uh, maintained access to, to vast data sets uh, that, that either offer insight into uh, what transpired or, or can help confirm uh, suspicions about, hey, in theory, this and this behavior might exist, but are you actually seeing it in the wild? So yeah, it's it's a lot of fun uh, uh, bouncing ideas back and forth with you. So, Joe, I'm going to direct this question at you. Uh, it's kind of broad, and maybe it would take multiple podcasts to answer, but what's wrong with internet security? Fundamentally, I think the biggest issue is that we are used to internet routing as a plain text messaging system. So I will pass on to you a message that you can reach a certain network via me uh, and, and vice versa. You will tell me, hey, you can reach the Kentic network via me. And those messages are plain text. It means there's no signature. There's no cryptographic way for me to verify that you were authorized to uh, send me that routing message. And I think from there, uh, a lot of the issues that we see stem. Uh, we, we have difficulty understanding the, the authenticity of routing messages. Um, so over the years, many uh, attempts or, or uh, mediations, remediations have been uh, uh, created to, to sort of limit the risk that this unsigned or, or plain text messaging back and forth between ISPs uh, to address that. Um, so for instance, uh, providers would ask their customers, hey, you want to purchase a, a transit circuit from me? Can you tell us the list of prefixes you intend to announce? And then the customer might fill in on the service order form a list of 10 prefixes that they intend to announce, or maybe they store that information in the IRR. Uh, or, or maybe elsewhere. Um, and then based on that information, the transit provider uh, creates a filter to only permit those prefixes that were previously agreed upon. Um, 
to, to mitigate the risk of the customer accidentally or maliciously announcing prefixes they should not be announcing. But as the internet grew, uh, doing this manually through, through surface order forms that you fax to each other, or uh, letters of agency, they are sometimes called, uh, LOAS, uh, this, this skills poorly, especially in the wholesale market. Uh, so fully automated systems like the internet routing registry uh, became commonplace to generate filters. But the Internet Routing Registry really is a garbage-in, garbage-out system. And yes, it is automatable, but again, there is no cryptographic signatures on, on any of that information. Uh, it's transported in plain text. And that means that you're, uh, you're receiving unsigned or uh, messages without signature from the customer that are the BGP messages. And you're comparing those unsigned BGP messages to unsigned information from the internet routing registry. And then you try to arrive at some kind of conclusion whether you should accept the route or not. Um, and yeah, this, this, this is a system that's been live for decades. It's growing organically. Uh, as we go, we, we learn and adopt and, and develop new technologies. And deploying new technologies easily takes up to a decade. So uh, it is no surprise that we are in the situation that we are. Uh, but luckily, with the advent of RPKI, I believe uh, we are finally uh, uh, seeing some traction in the internet routing industry to uh, really uh, improve uh, both safety and security of, of the routing system. Yeah, I do have two questions, though, based on what you said. Uh, the first is, now I've, I've configured BGP many times on a customer side, uh, peering with my provider, and you know you create whatever prefix lists and, and filtering policies, and that's fine. But from what you explained, it sounds like it could be, is it more of a problem between customers and their providers right at the edge or among transit providers or both? Absolutely both, yeah. And I, okay. I, if I look at the last handful of years, uh, it really took a lot of effort in, in the entire industry to move the, the mindset from uh, we must accept as many prefixes as possible because that means we have a full routing table to sort of the right. opposite mindset where, we, where people say we must reject all suspicious prefixes even if that means that our routing table becomes uh, smaller. So uh, it's, it's only been five, six years uh, that filtering on internet exchange route servers became commonplace. Because previously, uh, internet exchange operators would say, uh, it's not our role to do filtering. We are a neutral entity, and we just take those messages, unsigned messages, and we pass them around, and, and that's our job. And, and the more messages we pass around, the better of a job we are doing. Uh, but, but then the the customers of the internet exchanges had to teach the internet exchange operators. It's very nice that you want to be neutral, uh, but I cannot possibly fit good enough filters on my router because there are so many BGP sessions behind your route server and so many prefixes coming in that, that it is impossible for me to, to do correct filtering uh, after the aggregation point that your route server presents. And then slowly, internet exchange operators began to see value in like, oh, 
the more trustworthy my route server is, the more trustworthy or valuable my, my uh, service offering to the customers is, and the happier my customers are, the happier I am. So this mindset shift uh, is, is pretty recent. And uh, yeah, previously, some, some operators would say, hey, if we start filtering, we might lose visibility on, say, 5% of, of the routes passing through the route server. And I would always be on the barricades arguing, but those 5%, that's, it's bad information. Don't propagate it. Um, I, and I guess there is some analogy to, to like spam filtering in, in the really old days where originally you try to deliver every possible email to, to everybody. And at some point people are like, it's very nice uh, of you to try to deliver all these email messages, but like 50% of it is junk and I don't want it in my mailbox and it's your job to do the filtering. Um, and yeah, that, I, I think BGP routing went through a, a sort of similar transformation uh, where people began to realize that, that the goal is not to pass around as much information as possible, including route leaks. The goal is to, to create a stable system uh, that, that where uh, wrong information does not propagate through the system. Because wrong information invariably is uh, latency increases or, or unexpected traffic shifts or uh, even worse, uh, uh, traffic drops where traffic no longer arrives at the intended destination. Uh, so I, I think as the years went by, the industry really started to understand that these unsigned BGP messages better be of good quality, <laughs> otherwise we're in trouble. So Joba, you know, I, I started in this space in uh, 2009 with Renesis, and, um, uh, and I feel like it's a good time to have started because at that point, like you said, uh, you're talking about using the example of IXPs, but you know, transit provide like the state of routing hygiene uh, has improved. Let's put it that way. But but uh, but for those oh, you know first years of like digging through events, there was some wildly terrible things happening, and I and that's part of you know I know you've got a message or you've got a um, a. Uh, uh, an outlook on routing security, and I have one that I, they probably have, have some similar themes. But the one I've had in the past year of some presentations was like, we still have a lot uh, to do, and there's been now like these cryptocurrency hijacks and stuff. There's been still this stuff is, is still is still happening. Having said that, uh, we do have to take a moment and appreciate how we've how far we've come we've like uh your example of the ixps uh using route servers to to filter um i think that's just one of many examples that all started to come around uh you know in, in the last maybe it's five or six years like the timeline you mentioned but um uh i think the number of i call them like bonehead errors we just used to have this spectrum of you know one end is just some you know telecom Malaysia originating the whole internet or something, and then and then you got the other end, uh, the determined adversary, these folks that are you know going after cryptocurrency and doing really sophisticated stuff, and we'll we'll get that. We would we'd like to raise the raise the cost of those people on that end, but but at least it, you would you would hope we could eliminate the the bonehead end of that um, spectrum. And I feel like we've moved the needle. Uh, and I you know when's the last massive origination leak that disrupted the internet it's uh it's been a while um uh and i i think there's 
there's a lot of there's a lot of different people uh, doing a lot of different things uh, that they make that uh, a reality. But there's been some improvement before we throw you know get, throw up our hands on on all this. That does lead me to my second question, though, uh, Joe. You were talking about it sounds like pretty much origination, uh, verifying the authenticity of uh, prefixes that you're ingesting, and therefore, are, are you are you permitted? Are you allowed to be advertising these prefixes? Kind of checking that and verifying that. Is that the only kind of problem here? Because uh, I, I know that RPKI addresses that, but there are some other solutions out there to address different problems that we're seeing. Yeah, yeah. All of this is is uh, you, you stack on top of each other multiple practices or multiple technologies to uh, arrive at a let's call it stable, safe state of the uh, routing system. Uh, so, so if we look at like the last few years, internet exchanges fully embracing uh, route filtering, uh, now using it as a unique selling point to, to attract new business. It's, that's a fantastic development because previously internet exchange route servers were by their very nature, they don't have global visibility. An internet exchange route server only concerns the, the peers adjacent to that particular route server. Uh, so there's the, the visibility into incidents um, at that level is very different than, say, something uh, leaking through a, a global transit provider like TDR or NTT or Level 3. So Internet Exchange route servers, check. Um, but another development uh, was the popularization of a concept called peer lock. Uh, for for Many, many years, uh, a few internet providers uh, of, of substantial skill uh, had arrived at the conclusion that if you're, say, NCT uh, Cogent Level 3, uh, you should never ever see Level 3 routes via Cogent in the NCT network or any other permutation uh, thereof. And uh, so it's, it's not just about authorizing what is expected in the global routing system, but also discussing amongst uh, 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 providers what is absolutely never expected to show up in uh, the global routing system. So I, I think uh, Jared Mauch had a, a route leak detector that, that used uh, uh, a few permutations of regular expressions to, to figure out if uh, three or four uh, so-called transit-free networks would appear in the same AS path. And if that was the case, then that definitely was a route leak because the transit-free networks are not supposed to provide transit for each other. And I took that idea. It's like, all right, so we have monitoring. Cool. And we get alerts. Nice. We're aware of these outages. But how about we try and solve them? Uh, so during my NTT tenure, I... I talked to, to all those partners and was like, hey, can you implement filters uh, to prevent accepting routes that contain NTT's AS number anywhere in the AS path on all sessions except the ones with NTT themselves? Uh, and I think this also goes back to, to sort of a, a mindset shift that had to happen. Uh, previously, sometimes people would say, well, if I properly announce routes to you, but then you, in turn, leak them. That's not my problem. It's, it's your responsibility to not leak the routes that you receive from me. Nevertheless, 
I still suffer from that leak happening, even though it's not my equipment or my configuration that allowed the leak to, to spill. Uh, so taking preventive measures uh, that, that uh, uh, take an effect outside the immediate administrative domain uh, of the internet service provider themselves uh, was, was a huge step forward. And I think nowadays, uh, as amongst like the top 10 uh, providers uh, in, in the global transit uh, market, uh, you'll see a lot of peer lock uh, configurations. Uh, and, and this has a tremendous effect on the number of route leaks that we see nowadays compared to, say, five or 10 years ago. Um, tremendous effect, meaning it Yes, yeah, yeah, a positive effect. Yeah. I would... Uh, I, I, I would um... Uh, characterize it as uh, I would agree with the positive effect. What it ends up doing is just suppressing it down. So if there is some sort of leak, it just can't go through what I would term the top of the internet where it gets really uh, widely propagated, widely circulated. That's not possible. Uh, and so then you know these leaks end up just being localized. And that's that's kind of in this space. Uh, that's kind of the best you can hope for is that um, you, you were, uh, any, any problem that arises, we can't uh, uh, prevent all problems, but as long as they just stay uh, localized, then others don't get harmed by them. Well, there is still an underlying trust relationship, uh, both at the edge and with transit providers. So as much as we're talking about, uh, we, we mentioned PureLock and, and RPKI, there there are some technical uh, remediations that can be done, but a lot of it is administrative or some kind of a service layer on top that prevents like you said, uh, something that you can't prevent from propagating throughout the rest of the world. But I, I, and I want to get deeper into defining RPKI for our audience and PureLock and what those things are and what specifically they solve. But you've mentioned two different problems here. Uh, the authentication of the origin of a prefix that I'm seeing, but also path validation. So those are two kind of separate things, correct? Actually, there's three separate problems. <laughs> okay, very good. Yeah, well, that's why you're here, to, to educate, sure. Um, so what most people nowadays refer to as RPKI actually is RPKI route origin validation. And uh, the RPKI is a globally distributed database uh, that whose integrity is protected with signatures. Um, and the RPKI is sort of a, a foundation on top of which we can build multiple applications uh, that each somehow leverage or benefit uh, uh, the RPKI's cryptographic properties. So the RPKI, uh, just that word by itself, should be viewed as a, uh, a database uh, of, of delegated authorizations. The RER maintains uh, I don't know, like 20% of, of, of uh, internet resources, and their job is to ensure that those resources, be it IP address prefixes or uh, AS numbers, autonomous system numbers, uh, are delegated to, to ISPs, uh, who in turn may further delegate those to, to their customers. So with the RPKI, we, we have a, a system where we can figure out uh, who is authorized for to-do things, where I'm, I'm purposefully leaving things a bit fake for now, uh, uh, with what internet number resources. Now, fast forward a little bit, 
Then there is RPKI Route Origin Validation. And that is the first application built on top of this RPKI foundation. And Route Origin Validation, uh, the mechanism is as following. I can publish in the RPKI that a given IP prefix may be originated by a given AS number. And then consumers of that information can use that information to compare the BGP updates that they receive to that cryptographically, inf uh, uh, cryptographically verifiable information stored in the RPKI. So uh, if your prefix is uh, 10-8, and you announce in BGP 10-8 towards me originating from AS, uh, uh, 65,123, it's a private number, um, then, then I can check whether the, the information in the BGP update matches the information that I uh, learned through the RPKI. And if there's a mismatch, then I know that your BGP announcement has an issue uh, and therefore I should reject or ignore uh, your BGP announcement. And in doing so, I ensure that the, the safety of my routing system is uh, maintained. Uh, so route origin validation is uh, you, you take untrusted input, a BGP update, uh, and you compare that to an out-of-band distributed cryptographically verifiable uh, database. But that doesn't solve all issues because uh, you may spoof the uh, The, the origin in your BGP message, or there might be something like a route leak in which you are uh, uh, redistributing parts or, or the entire routing table to me, uh, and you're not supposed to do that, but nevertheless, you are doing that for some reason. Could be a misconfiguration, could be a software bug in your router. Um, and then if I apply origin validation, a lot of those announcements will look squeaky clean Because when you're doing a route leak, you're, you're not modifying the origin. Uh, you're, you're just passing on these messages, even though you didn't intend to pass on those messages. So for that problem, uh, the, the problem of route leaks, um, what started out as pure lock, so this mechanism of, hey, I should never see routes that contain cogens ASN behind level three peering sessions or vice versa, Um, uh, peer lock is not a democratic approach to this problem. Peer lock requires that you, you pick up the phone, that you have social relationships with, with the people managing those other large networks. Uh, so it's, it's not accessible to everybody. Uh, and, and there are 85,000-ish autonomous systems in the global routing system. Uh, so we definitely need a solution that does not require those 85,000 organizations emailing each and every one of the 85,000 organizations to establish uh, what routes are supposed to, to go where. So to, to democratize uh, the solution to, to the problem of route leaks, Alexander Asimov uh, and, and some others uh, came up with an idea that is called ASPA, uh, Autonomous System Provider Authorizations. And what's really cool about ASPA is that it leverages this RPKI 
database, this distributed database of uh, authorization delegations. Uh, and the, the ASPA technology is such that you uh, can publish in this database who your providers are. And the consumers of that data uh, can verify or compare a given BGP update to through, through the origin validation trick to see if the origin is, is matching up and also use that information uh, of, of the listed providers and compare that to the ASNs that appear in the AS path uh, and from that deduct whether a route leak is happening or not. Because route leaks are uh, uh, business problems. It's, it's from a protocol perspective perfectly valid to, to leak routes. I mean, that's basically... Uh, uh, a full transit service is is an authorized intended leak of of the entire routing table, <laughs> um, and and then uh, the third application that builds on top of uh, the RPKI uh, has to do with the authenticity of the BGP messages, because even with origin validation and even with ASPA, uh, the BGP message that you sent me uh, is unsigned it doesn't contain a cryptographic signature so for all i know is that you may be spoofing an as path and that you're fabricating the information in the as path such that it complies with the origin validation check such that it complies with the as path verification check uh, but still is not supposed to be there because you're not uh, uh, who you say you are and for that uh, a solution exists called bgpsec and in BGPSec, you, you stick uh, uh, signatures inside the PGP messages that can be verified uh, using public keys distributed through the RPKI. And to figure out which public key belongs to which AS, again, the RPKI system of uh, delegated authorizations is used. Uh, so you can never ever publish a public key and associate it with an AS number that does not belong to you. So that is the holy trifecta that we uh, need to really secure uh, the whole global routing system. And I think we're like halfway through this. <laughs> Couple things. I um, it's a good summation of uh, the the I think the state or the you know the the, the plan. Uh, I guess you know. Well, so you just mentioned B2B sex, so maybe we mention that one first. Uh, so the the I'll just go ahead and say like there's there's been uh, a belief or pushback on that that this is a technology that's too taxing on a router to be able to uh, handle uh, the the verification the cryptographic verification for messages as they come at line speed, and that uh, that is going to be the death of that technology and. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'm t setting you up and like, so what's the, what's the response? Uh, cause I know I hear it. I know you do. Um, what's the response for that? It, it is a really good and fair question. Um, because we have not as of yet, 2023 seen a lot of BGP sec uptake. So what gives, what's, what's wrong with this technology? So I have a few theories and some positive outlook in, in this regard. Um, for BGPSEC to exist, the RPKI global distributed database of authorizations first had to exist because it's you build one application on top of 
the other thing. And I think the original designers of, of RPKI technology were super clever, or maybe this you know just happened by accident, to first focus efforts on origin validation, because out of all the technological aspects, origin validation arguably is the simplest one. You, you, you fetch the information from the RPKI, you do the signature verification, and but push comes to shove. What, what you do on the router is you compare a few integers with each other. You, you compare the integers that you received out of the RPKI system with some integers that you received out of the BGP update. And getting to that state already was a tremendous effort because all five RERs had to create uh, software and deploy software that facilitated the local internet registries to, to publish uh, ROAS. Those are used for origin validation. Uh, and then ISPs had to start using those ROAS. And that's, I think, a super novel uh, development. It was only uh, at the start of 2020 that, that the large uh, uh, tier one providers started using RPKI origin validation as, as part of their uh, defensive posture. So I, I would say origin validation is, is super young. We've only been using it for like three years now at truly global scale in, in hundreds of networks. And to get there, that, that took, I don't know, 10 years? <laughs> I, I will add, uh, Joe, because I know you're too humble to uh, to take any credit, but th this was in no small part to a lot of your advocacy uh, and traveling to many, many uh, nanogs and apricots, lachnics, right? Uh, giving a lot of talks uh, and making a case. So there was, um, uh, you know, you deserve some credit on that. But obviously there's a lot of people involved. Well. Sure. Much appreciated. I, I, I take credit for uh, evangelizing the technology, but I, I didn't invent it. it. It was there and I was looking at it. I was like, holy shit, this addresses a really big problem that we have. We I, I need to tell everybody that there is a solution to this problem. So that's so that's ROV. And then I think you're, you're right. bringing us up to the, the, the case for BGPSEC. So I think BGPSEC in... The IETF uh, uh, was a little bit ahead of its time. They, they had finished the specifications for route origin validation, published the RFCs, and sort of, you know, thrown it uh, across the wall. Uh, uh, so, you know, we, we are done. On, onwards to the next problem, path validation. But they had not waited uh, until the world had deployed origin validation and then start the path validation development uh, process. Uh, they, they did things quite quick after each other, and I, I don't fault them. Uh, but, but this means that when the BGPSEC RFCs got published, so I think this was like 2017, 2018, the world had not yet even deployed origin validation. That came in 2020. So BGPSEC standard was laying around, the origin validation standard was also laying around in like 2019, and neither of them really deployed at scale. Uh, uh, so, so that, I think, was a big obstacle for, for BGPSEC. And then, because then a few years later, people look at BGPSEC and they're like, nobody deployed this, so it must be trash. But the same applied 
to origin validation that that lingered around having been published as an RFC, uh, and it took like eight years for it to really see some uptake in in the the, the real world internet. So, are you saying that um, it's it's a it's a it's a uh, uh, the the specification is just too young uh, to is that. I think the specification was, was uh, published in a time frame where people were not yet receptive to what that specification could mean in, in real-world operations. And, and there's a few factors that tie into this. Um, yes, there, there, people have expressed concerns about computational cost of, of this BGPSEC mechanism, and they're not wrong. But luckily... Uh, CPUs in, inside our routers uh, get upgraded over time. Like every five, six years, most operators will replace virtually all gear in their deployment. And every time you do a refresh of the equipment that you deployed in the field, you, you get more RAM, faster or better disk and better CPU. Maybe a CPU with hardware acceleration for cryptographic operations. Uh, so, so as time goes by, the hardware on which we're supposed to run this machinery is getting beefier and beefier to the point that it's actually feasible to, to do uh, inline signing and verification of, of BGP messages. Um, but when BGPSEC specification was, was being developed and, and published, I think a lot of people were looking at their currently deployed hardware and we're like, no way this ever is going to fly. Not realizing that maybe five years from now, the hardware might be perfectly suitable to do it. So, so there's a bit of uh, tension between when technologies exist on paper and when we can actually use them in the field in commonly deployed machinery. So, so that's one aspect. CPUs are getting better. Another cool aspect of BGPSEC uh, is that you don't need to do it on each and every BGP session. BGPSEC protects the integrity of your BGP session, and it's worth spending resources on the BGP sessions that matter most to you. So if a particular uh, BGP session is revenue generating for you, uh, that's worth protecting. But if the session is, is uh, for instance, a gateway of last resort, uh, then maybe it's not worth protecting it with BGPSEC because you literally are sending packets down that path only because there is no path, no other path available, uh, and, and therefore it doesn't really matter. So, so to provide some real context with this, uh, in the case of Fastly, our private peering connections are the valuable connections. Those are super high bandwidth. Uh, they, they move lots and lots of bits. But generally speaking, the BGP state on both sides of those high bandwidth connections are pretty small compared to the entire global routing table that we receive from our transit providers. So if there is a private peering between Fastly and, and some uh, uh, residential uh, internet service provider, uh, back and forth, we might be exchanging a few hundred or only a few thousand uh, routes uh, and signing and verifying a few hundred or few thousand routes arguably takes way less CPU cycles than uh, signing and verifying uh, a million routes that I'm receiving on the transit connections. 
but the transit connections have a lower local preference because those are the gateway of last resort. That means passing the packets on to uh, a network uh, that acts as an intermediate. And whenever you can cut out the middleman, uh, usually from either a latency or capacity or economic perspective, it's best to, to, to create short paths. So I, I think there are some interesting uh, positive uh, interactions between the economics of how the internet works at large and that people uh, are invested to protect the BGP sessions that uh, are worth most. And that generally speaking, those valuable BGP sessions are responsible for the vast, vast majority of internet traffic that is being exchanged and coincidentally represent the least amount of BGP state on both sides of the connection. In other words, uh, yes, BGPSEC has computational costs. And I think uh, it is feasible that we'll see in, in years to come at global scale uh, that people will opt to, to protect uh, small BGP sessions that represent large amounts of traffic. And there's the, the matter of the, the ecosystem being ready in terms of uh, software capabilities. Um, in, in, in 2018, 2019, I started with an RPKI validator project uh, inside OpenBSD called RPKI Client. Uh, and, and the first thing we developed was the ability to validate ROAS in order to facilitate origin validation. Uh, and then later on, uh, I added uh, the capability to verify BGPSEC router keys. Uh, and a few months ago, I added uh, support to verify ASPA objects. Um, and, and as time goes by, these new capabilities have to find their way into all components of these pipelines. Because not only does my validator need to support ASPA or origin validation or, or BGPSEC, but the RER web interface where you configure ROAS or ASPAS or BGP keys also must support all three. And my router also has to support all three. Uh, and that can take years. I, I think origin validation is, is pretty new in, in global deployment. We, 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 I think we now found most of the bugs in the BGP stacks. Uh, ASPA verification is, is in full development. Uh, the OpenBGPD project uh, uh, is, is, has been working hard on that the last few months. And then next up is BGPSEC. And I think once all three are available to operators that they can actually start testing if it works for them, if it gives them benefit, maybe in partial deployments, then we, we have the final verdict on whether a technology uh, was, was uh, a misfire or super beneficial, but it unfortunately took you know, 10, 15 years for it to get deployed. And, and finally, we've seen the web transform from an HTTP plain text only uh, 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 system to, to something that is now where, where close to 100% of, of HTTP traffic runs over TLS protected sessions. And I think in, in the old days, people would argue, oh, TLS on the web server is super expensive doing cryptography uh, with, with each and every 
uh, web server client is is crazy. Uh, but as years went by, people were like, oh, it is worth my while to heavily invest in sufficient CPU cycles in order to protect the HTTP connections to my customers because the cost of dealing uh, with, with network abuse is higher than the cost of just throwing more CPU power at the problem. And maybe we'll, we'll see a similar development in the BHP uh, world where some people realize that to their business, uh, the additional cost of the, the CPU cycles is worth protecting certain BGP sessions. And as I said, I don't think BGPSec needs to happen on each and every session. Uh, I think we'll, especially in the beginning, see that people deploy it on, in a limited context on, on private peering sessions or sessions facing their, their uh, customers, sessions that represent revenue, and therefore it can be justified to you know, throw the, the extra CPU power at it to, to make it secure. Uh, it, to me, it does feel like RPKI is almost like a foundational um, stepping stone uh, to much of the, the, the more advanced or subsequent um, uh, mechanisms that we're using. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the, the RPKI really is a, a general purpose infrastructure to, to verify whether someone was authorized to do something with an AS number or an IP address. And uh, so, so it's really important that, that going forward, we do not consider RPKI synonymous to route origin validation. Route origin validation was just the first simplest application we could come up with that uh, had a dependency on, on the RPKI. Uh, so in the realm of new innovation, uh, last year, uh, an RFC was published uh, that specifies a thing called RPKI signed checklists. And what that allows people to do is to produce uh, a cryptographically cryptographic verifiable signature over an arbitrary hash that you can verify with the deployed uh, RPKI. So, for instance, um, if like, let's talk about bring your own IP space and, and cloud providers. If, um, if, if I want the likes of Amazon or Google to originate my prefix, a prefix that was assigned to me, Job Snyders, uh, but I don't want to run my own infrastructure. I want to use their cloud infrastructure and have them originate the prefix. Uh, so I don't need to invest in, in running a router. Cool. So... I, I sign up with, with one of these cloud providers uh, and they say, thank you for trying to onboard. Uh, please create a ROA that authorizes our autonomous system to originate your prefix on your behalf. Now, if I create a ROA that authorizes uh, either Google's ASN 15169 or Amazon 16509, uh, then at that stage of the onboarding process, Amazon doesn't actually know whether I created the ROA or coincidentally someone else who is also trying to onboard created that ROA. And it could happen that two entities 
both create an account in, in the cloud provider's uh, management portal and both claim to own the same prefix. So at that stage, because the ROA exists, Amazon or Google does know they are authorized to originate the prefix, but they don't know which of their customers the prefix actually belongs to. And over the years, a number of workarounds or hacks uh, have, have, uh, uh, have become part of, of these onboarding procedures. So uh, I believe Google would, would ask you to, they would present you with a, a random string and then ask you to put that random string in the whois record for uh, the prefix. Um, and then Google would start scraping that whois entry. And then if they would see that random prefix pop up, then they knew which customer account the prefix actually belongs to. But unfortunately, uh, this is a pollution of the who is because the business between me and Google is solely between me and Google and the who is is a public resource. So it's, it's a bit dirty to, to put that private business interaction in the public who is. And who is is... Uh, transported in plain text. It's it's not a cryptographically secure channel. Um, uh, so the, the, there's a lot of friction in those onboarding procedures. And uh, the mechanism that we came up with is that the cloud provider can tell the customer a random string. The customer can produce a tiny file, an RSC file, uh, that is a cryptographic signature over that string and that file can be sent to the cloud provider and then the cloud provider can verify that file against the existing globally deployed RPKI. So if they, if I ask them to originate an IP prefix, I will create a ROA that authorizes the cloud provider's ASN. The cloud provider will tell me uh, as a random string, I produce an object or a file using my RPKI uh, uh, keys to, to sign it, send that to the cloud provider via, say, email or a web form upload. And then the cloud provider can verify against the RPKI uh, database of uh, delegated authorizations whether I indeed possess the private keys associated with a given IP prefix. So once the, uh, those two steps happened, uh, the cloud provider knows two things. A, they are authorized to originate the prefix. Anybody can see this because it's published in the global RPKI as a ROA. And B, which of their customers uh, uh, the prefix is to be associated with. And with, with those two components, uh, onboarding can happen in a fully automated way, in a fully uh, secure way. Uh, and, and that's that's. And it happens uh, in, in a private interaction because that second step, the RSC, uh, uh, is, is only between me and the cloud provider. It's not published in the public who is. It's, it's, it's not, you know, I don't have to put it on a website. Uh, it's a file that exists and, and only myself and, and the cloud provider know of the existence of that file uh, and its contents. Uh, so that's, I... I so this is super, super new. The RFC was published only a few months ago. Uh, and, and here again, we have to, to wait for the ecosystem to, to catch up. Uh, the, the validators need to be uh, 
extended to support validating such uh, uh, offline signatures. Uh, the RER portals may need to receive an update uh, so that people can generate those signature files. Um, it needs to be embedded in, in the workflow of these cloud providers to, to use this as an onboarding mechanism. Uh, so to, to give you another example of, of the applicability of this, um, anybody can sign up for free in PeeringDB to either as an IXP or an ISP, and PeeringDB needs to somehow uh, figure out whether you signing up for the service are actually a representative of uh, the entity you proclaim to be. So in the case of an ISP, uh, you, you sign up with the primary uh, unique identifier being your AS number. In the case of an IXP, you sign up with the peering land prefix being your uh, unique uh, identifier. Um, and using this RSC technology, uh, PeeringDB no longer needs to send an email to the email addresses listed in the WHOIS record, hoping to somehow confirm that somebody was actually signing up to PeeringDB. But instead, PeeringDB, uh, uh, PeeringDB's onboarding system could present the, the, uh, the user who is trying to sign up with, with this challenge and say, hey, if you claim to have uh, some, some authorization or if you claim to be representative of uh, a given AS, um, prove it. Sign, sign this thing uh, with a signature that I can associate with the AS number. And uh, then, then PeeringDB's sign-up procedures can be fully automated uh, and, and are uh, cryptographically secured. And this is great news because PeeringDB offers a, a single sign-up sur uh, surface, sorry, a single sign-on surface, uh, OAuth-based, which many uh, organizations and applications integrated. Uh, so the, the trust, PeeringDB being a trustworthy source of uh, uh, where, where people can rely on, on uh, the users being who they say they are or representing who they claim to represent is, is super beneficial. So, Job, I want to interrupt. Uh, you were involved with uh, uh, an ASPA deployment very recently. Is that correct? Uh, absolutely. I'm super proud of this. Yeah. yeah why don't you tell um, us just last week at the Calgary Internet Exchange in uh, Alberta in, in Canada, we deployed the world's first ASPA filtering route servers. So ASPA is a super new technology. It's still in internet draft status at the IETF, uh, but we're now somewhat close to, to the publication phase. And that means that people got to pony up running code. People have to you know, do their final review. Is, this, is the specification working as intended? And with the production of running code, you, you can only be so sure uh, uh, after you start using it yourself, it's it's like eat your own dog food, right? You 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 gotta walk the walk. <laughs> so um, over the last few months, uh, in in the OpenBSD project, uh, with the support of the the Route Server Support Foundation, we've been super busy um, uh, developing ASPA support in both the validator and the BGP daemon, OpenBGPD, and. Uh, the, this development effort is very important from my perspective for the ITF standardization process. Because 
if you end up with specifications that look great on paper, but are super hard to implement in real programs, uh, the specification is, is not going to have a good time and you may need to redo the specification, uh, which is a, a very time costly uh, exercise. So in the IETF, in, in some working groups, uh, IDR, which governs BGP, and CIDR Ops, which governs all things uh, RPKI, uh, there's an expectation that before things are published as RFC, before they become these super formal documents, um, people can demonstrate that they actually wrote this in software and that the specification and the behavior of the software are aligned with each other. So OpenBSD being a, a project uh, originating in, in, in Calgary, Canada, uh, it is very fitting that, that we took the, the bite and uh, are, are the, the first to, to try and use ASPAT verification in a, a real-world, uh, real internet deployment. Um, and the, what a, a funny, amazing thing to me is like, as a small open source project, it is pretty easy to to get this far ahead and, and embrace uh, new technologies and, and be the bleeding edge. But I, I think it might be like two, maybe three years uh, before you'll see ASPA support in commercial off-the-shelf uh, vendors uh, like Arista or Cisco or Juniper. Uh, and this is perfectly reasonable and, and easy to explain because, uh, you know, being OpenBHPD, we just provide documentation in English. Uh, being a global commercial off-the-shelf uh, supplier, you, you got to translate your manuals in, into all these languages. You, you got to train uh, the support staff that all around the world about the new technology. And only after you've done all that work, oh, and you got to code the ASPA support itself, of course. And only after you've done all of that, you can release it to the world. Um, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm happy we are the world's first. And I, I think for like two years, uh, <laughs> we, we will not see that much traction in the commercial world. Uh, but I do believe that initiatives like this help pave the path for the commercial providers because now they have an implementation, an open source implementation to compare their own uh, implementation uh, against. So, yeah, it's it's a world's first, uh, but it's it's a bit lonely at the moment. And I, I hope that in the years to come, uh, many vendors and many other internet exchanges and network providers uh, will will use ASPA uh, to verify uh, BGP announcements. And ultimately, we've seen progress over the last few decades. Though we 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 almost talk about these, uh, we've been focused on these uh, these three. Uh, uh, remediations and now um, uh, ASPA and RSC as well. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing this continue to develop and keeping an eye on the contributions that you're making into the uh, into the industry, into the community. So it's very much appreciated. But I do. Uh, uh, we're at time now. So Job and Doug, uh, discussion has been excellent, uh, which is exactly what I expected. Very eye opening as well, and learning about some of the technologies that are being developed literally like last month. So. Oh, and especially consider that we're talking about global internet routing, something that affects most of the planet, right? So thank you for joining today, and especially thank you to you, Job, our special guest, and for sharing your knowledge, uh, your vision, what you're working on right now with us. So for comments, questions, to learn more, Job, how can folks in our audience find you online? You can either email me, job at fastly.com, or uh, find me on Mastodon, 
bsd.network slash at sign job or on Twitter, twitter.com slash job sniders or uh, I don't know, you'll, you'll, you'll find a way. And I'm, 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 I'm happy to take questions or, or, or you know, if, if people are, are curious about something I mentioned in this podcast, you know, feel free to ask me questions. I'm, I'm happy to help folks along and try to move the needle uh, forward a little Great. bit. Thank you for that. And Doug, Kentix, resident director of internet analysis. How can folks find you online? Let's see. So I am on Twitter. I am newly on Mastodon uh, in each place. Uh, my handle's Doug Midoriya. I haven't come up with any kind of creative, cute uh, name. Uh, and then uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Great. And you can find me on Twitter at network underscore Phil. Still very active there. You can search my name on LinkedIn. And if you'd like to be a guest on Telemetry Now, or if you have an idea for an episode that you'd like to share, please feel free to reach out to us at telemetrynow at kentic.com. And you can follow Telemetry Now on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. So for now, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.